welcome to Systematically, your weekly-ish theology podcast. I'm Robin Bure, and I'm coming to you from Toronto, Canada, where it is a gray and blustery five degrees in Celsius, some amount of 30 or 40 in Fahrenheit. Um, I know you're probably all shocked to hear my voice coming to you instead of John's dulcet tones. Uh, but he's actually in Milwaukee this morning, um, recording another episode of the podcast and also watching people get hitched. And I can only imagine um, celebrating in the imbibing fashion that one normally does. Uh, this morning um, with me is Ryan Hemmer. Hi, Ryan. Hey, everybody. And we're welcoming a special guest, Eric Mabry. Hello, Eric. Hey, guys. Eric, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about what you do and where you work and who you are? I am. Uh, sure. Uh, so I did my uh, BA and uh, my BA in philosophy and theology at the University of St. Thomas down in Houston. I uh, also completed a master's in philosophy down there at the Center for Thomistic Studies. So I'm a Thomist through and through. Uh, but as one of my doctoral supervisors used to tell me, different sort of Thomas, uh, and that may come through a little bit today. I uh, did my doctoral work up in Toronto under Jeremy Wilkins, Bob Sweetman, and Gilles Mangeau, um, and I wrote a dissertation on the question of essay secondarium in Thomas Aquinas. I am currently the department chair of systematic theology at Christ the King Seminary in East Aurora, New York, although uh, my family and I reside in Stony Creek, Ontario. Uh, I normally teach in my rotation Christology, sacraments, metaphysics, and Thomas Aquinas, but I've got a couple of extra things on my plate this year that are that are fun. So, I guess that's it. Excellent. Well, welcome, Eric. We have Eric with us this morning because we're going to be talking about, I was going to say Trinitarian theology, but actually, I think really just Christology. Um, but before we begin, we have some frivolity for you. Uh, this week's frivolity question is, what is the best view from a bathroom that you've ever seen? Best being quite subjective in terms of, you know, just what you think is a cool view from a bathroom. It can be one that you have uh, used yourself, uh, or it can also be uh, one that you have heard of. This feels like a like a, a strangely intimate question. There's nothing like intimate on its face about it, but man, I'm like, oh, this is a little, this is a little hitting a little close to home here, Robin. Well, you know, um, I mean, really, it's just an excuse for you to talk about like places you've been, right? But in the weirdest way possible. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, why not? It's but not true. Because there's all these peripheral issues that sort of envelop the view, right? Because you don't mm -hmm. know what's outside the view and what's going on. You just, but you're asking us sort of to bracket out all the, those other things and just about the view from the back. Exactly. Yeah. Because, I mean, most of the time in a washroom, you're just like staring at a blank wall. So when you're in a bathroom that has like a, a view, I just figure like you really notice it, right? I don't know if I've traveled to enough exotic places to really have like a favorite view of a bathroom. 
because I haven't been in enough like sort of exotic bathrooms that differ enough from one another that I could really say is my favorite. Uh, but I did one time see a uh, see a, an article on the uh, the Kardashian West mansion house thing and uh the the view from their shower room and it is a shower room like a glass room with the door and multiple like you know shower heads and everything uh it 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 is on to a window that's like out into this four-walled japanese garden so in like you know in that world where i sold you know multiple new york times bestsellers on uh essay secondarium and uh and all these wonderful people uh including the people in new york reddit uh and hannah and i were able to have this this sort of shower room in our in our mansion uh then uh, i feel like that would be like my favorite view that every day i got to shower in this glass room that looked out on a japanese garden i think i'm gonna go with that all right yeah you know, most of the times, like the the bathroom is where you go, like when there's a tornado and you need to be in a room that's located in the center of a house that has no windows, uh, where you can be, you know, safe from flying debris. <laughs> safe from children sometimes. Well, that's true too. I don't, I don't uh, know of a room. That's where a tornado like- of a different sort. Pipes could burst everywhere. Is like where you want to be in a tornado, but. I mean, here's the thing. Pipes can burst anywhere. I guess that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, lots of bathrooms don't even have a view. I know. That's, it's, that's it's why, just like. the back of a door. Right? That's, right. that's the point here is, like, so, you know, have you ever been in a bathroom that, that I think I've been so really habituated to bathrooms not having a view that I've simply stopped looking for them. So, um, you know, they just, because, they just I mean, pass you by. I mean, I was just reading topics and it's just like, you know, how perceiving is not just about like sensing things around you, but it has to be intentional. Were you reading topics in the bathroom? I was <laughs> reading it in the bath the other night, actually. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, but anyways, I thought about this. This morning when I was just contemplating how boring the back of my door is. And I was thinking when we were in Glasgow, we stayed in the Central Station Hotel and it's actually attached to the train station. And the train station is kind of, it's open air, but it's covered with a roof. Um, And the hotel's taller than kind of the roof of the station, but our room was on only the third or fourth floor. So the op- the bathroom window actually opened into the station. And you could kind of like look out and just watch like everyone go to work and come back and go to work and come back or whatever. You couldn't actually like, it was kind of like tucked awkwardly in the corner. Like you couldn't just be in the shower and like looking out the window. Um, you had to kind of like look over the edge to kind of see, but it was pretty neat. But hands down, the best bathroom view is all over like Banff and Jasper National Parks. Um, the backcountry bathrooms, they've they kind of stopped building covered outhouses for a whole variety of logistical reasons. And instead, what they have are these like platforms that 
are usually up kind of like they're raised because there's kind of like buckets underneath that they can get in and out with like helicopters. Um, cause if it's all, if it's all rocky, you can't like dig down and dig a proper outhouse hole. And so, um, you kind of like go up these stairs onto this platform that's just like on the side of a mountain and it's open air. And there's just like, usually like three unpartitioned, just like, um, toilet seats like little plat like white plastic toilet seats um and so then like you sit down and your view is just they, they they make an effort to make it nice like your view is just like an entire valley or like neighboring but peaks an, but from an outhouse though you're saying but it's not really i mean calling it an outhouse because it's not like the kind of like classic like moon on the door tall skinny covered outhouses it's more like so it has um, plumbing there's plumbing well, I mean, there's not plumbing because it's it's just like it's a hole in the ground. It's a hole in the ground, but instead of being in the ground, it's actually over these kind of like big bucket things so that they can helicopter the waste out. Yeah. So the yeah. Boundary Waters has a pretty similar situation. Uh, it'll just be canoeing along, and then all of a sudden there'll be a a toilet in the woods with no structure around it or anything like that, just totally open air. Uh, and it's just a yeah, it's just a toilet seat basically over a over a hole in the ground, mm-hmm. and you just sort of sit down and do your thing, and uh, surrounded by you know nature, mm-hmm. you sort of expect like you know birds to like you know lay lay a, a crown of flowers on your head, and when, you know when you say woodland it like creatures that- to come out. When you say it like that, I can only think of the scene in Jurassic Park where the lawyer runs in and, of course, the, the, the bathroom collapses. For, so for a split second, it's just the toilet surrounded by foliage and this lawyer. And then, of course, he gets eaten by the Tyrannosaurus. Right. Right. But like- so that might take the cake for... The, the most interesting view from a bathroom, Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex. I mean, that is true. And, and like, the, the, like least likely to be uh replicated by yeah, like, and yeah, i mean you fair. guys like if you got really curious you could go to glasgow and ask for a certain you know uh hotel room or you could like go to the mountains and 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 have like a whole valley view from your toilet but um really none of us are going to see a t-rex from the bathroom seems unlikely mm-hmm. though i think we've got you know the makings of a of a whole like bathroom tourism brochure here so. that yeah. would be amazing i bet you could start well, an ig account amazing is a strong word <laughs> yeah that just reminds me of a fact i learned recently that when they built versailles like you know it's over the top right the gardens the earth moving there like they demolished a couple of small towns they moved like thousands and thousands and thousands of um yards of soil they diverted rivers they built this whole palace it's like incredible they didn't remember to put they didn't really put any washrooms in so like when guests were in versailles they would just kind of like pop a squat behind a curtain what yeah seriously no so not true very true no no way yeah anyway so like you know Weird and intimate, but if people had thought about the views from bathrooms, they maybe would have remembered to put them in. I there's a Mel Brooks joke in there somewhere. There's got to be. That's definitely it. true. I think Ryan's right. Also, too, I just can't think about all the different parties 
all the parties that are taking place in Versailles, and you know they had massive ones. Yeah. And so, like, you know, mobility issues, walking straight, all those sorts of things. But what if you stumbled into some place where somebody had just decided to, to I just think that that's all. Yeah, I just think that they probably had a whole bunch of staff whose job it was to deal so. with that. Yeah, your job, your job to clean up. All yeah, but the- reports re- reports have it that like even guests like often remarked on just how bad it smelt in Versailles. <laughs> so, and on that happy note, cool. we're going to talk about what we're here to talk about today. Uh, so right now um, I'm working on an article actually for the Na- National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly um, on basically Thomistic, a Thomistic approach to disability. So I've been doing a bunch of reading. Um, and I came across an interesting article. Um, maybe I should back up a tiny bit. So in, in, in theological disability studies, um, there's a lot of talk about um, the fact that all of us, maybe, well, a lot of them follow essentially the definition of um, the biological definition of impairment. So you have some sort of particular biological um, illness or um, uh, you've lost a limb or, you know, your legs don't work or, you know, kind of the sort of actual like biological factor that um, affects uh, how your um, body functions, then that's an impairment. Um, and then disability is, is, is understood in more of a social sense that basically disability is when society doesn't make provisions for the inclusion of people. So um, if you have legs that don't work, that's an impairment, but it's not a disability until you and your wheelchair encounter stairs to get into a building. And that's, and so they can talk about the ways in which both this, like physical items in society, like staircases, lack of elevators, that sort of things, but also social attitudes um, about the value of persons um, with disabilities, how those are all disabling, but different from impairment. And then one of the moves that um, many people make is an argument, which I think is quite right, that essentially all of us have impairment of some sort. um, And that to be a creature of God is to be um, to have limitations, to be impaired. And most of us at some point or another, um, will have an impairment. And also all of us have a, have dependencies that we, uh, rely on. But there's also been some interesting moves to then, um, take that not only that, you know, human beings as creatures of God have these limitations, these impairments, um, but also that God is a disabled God. So Generally, people look to Jesus Christ and say, well, you know, um, look to the crucifixion, often looking to the resurrection body. And, um, you know, when Jesus meets the disciples, he still has the nail holes in his hands and he still has the, um, the wound in his side that he tells Thomas to stick his fingers in. And so um, the idea there is that, well, this kind of against an idea that well, we have kind of physical impairments now, whatever, but like in heaven, we'll get a pristine, perfectly functioning body and we'll all be, you know, beautiful and, um, and 
have the quote unquote correct number of lambs and you know that sort of thing instead saying well actually um just as jesus still had his kind of injuries um then uh so will we these are some in, like interesting moves this is just to kind of give you guys some context today i don't want to talk so much about um the disability theology side i'd like to do that in another one but in this article that I read and that um, I want to talk about today, what happens is that Richard Cross takes kind of this um, effort to talk about God as disabled um, and or or impaired. And what he's doing is he wants to to show that through the metaphysics of the relationship between the divine person and the human person in Jesus Christ. So he's not seeing impairment as just um, accidental to Jesus because he was crucified or whatever, but actually in that relationship between the divine person, and the human person, there's basically a, a dependence of vulnerability to impairment that's kind of um, inseparable from this, from who the second person of the Trinity is. So that's what I want to talk about this morning is the kind of nitty gritty Trinitarian stuff or Christo Christological stuff. Um, and so I'm going to turn it over to Eric pretty soon, but basically what, what Cross ends up doing is um, kind of a little bit of a, of a synthetic project arguing for the human person of Christ to be basically to understood as a complete prosthesis, right? So it's the pr prosthetic for the divine, and without then that prosthetic, is kind of unable then to basically be or do or function. Um, and so I want this morning I want to talk about kind of how does that idea work out? Um, who does he rely on? And also um, are there ways that you can make an argument like this that don't end up being open theism arguments, which is where Cross ends up going. So so Robin, I just have a clarifying question. Mm -hmm. um, So one of the main features of Cross's uh, point, you know, he of course introduces the distinction that you say is very common in the disability literature between impairment and disability. And as you just noted, uh, he, he he wants to talk about the humanity of Jesus as a kind of prosthesis. Uh, my, I, I guess my question is, you you would like to see, so you have some worries or you have some concerns about you know, his embrace of open theism and therefore some, some potentially either theologically erroneous, also maybe metaphysically erroneous, but then ultimately perhaps even some, uh, uh, we won't say heretical, but maybe some dogmatically unsound implications for his position. But your main interest actually is uh, if we were to, to sort of redirect, keep a conciliar Christology, keep everything, all our dogmatic eyes and he's crossed, uh, would it still be possible to save some of this language about uh, impairment or even disability with respect to uh, a Christology? Is that right? Yeah, I think um, I don't at this point, I think I just want to explore that possibility. Um, I'm for me, it's still a question of whether you have to show a dependency in God or yeah. whether you can talk about kind of the universality of impairment 
for human beings, but that's specifically part of their creaturehood. There's a bunch of other things um, that's part of our creaturehood that's not part of um, the Trinity. That's not inherently a problem. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's what makes us not God, right? Right. right. Um, at the same time, uh, it is a move I think that's quite common in disability theology and um, I think that it's in the very least important to to kind of work that out and what would this look like if we um, what does it look like to talk about kind of the second you know if we're made in the image of God is you know is this part of our image um, you know basically you know, there's, and there's a gamut of like relationality, vulnerability, impairment, that sort of thing. Um, that you can kind of relate to the Trinity and to, and to Christ's relationship. But um, I think that for all sorts of suffering, so, you know, um, in the human experience, we look to, to experience of Jesus, right? Because even though we say that, um, you know, God is um not passive right or sorry um i can't think of the word not he has no he has no potency right um yeah he has no potency but also that he's um i'm struggling with my words this morning you know but he doesn't like um he doesn't doesn't suffer anything he doesn't change and he doesn't right yeah he's impassive that's the word i'm he's not passive he's (laughs) impassive yeah um and uh you know, so we say God's impassable, but at the same time, we talk about the sufferings of Christ, right? Of and we talk about the ways in which that, um, ways in which we can relate to, and um, and it becomes, I think, a really powerful theological response to say, well, actually, no, there's not this whole idea that like we should like prevent all suffering, or that we can prevent all suffering, <clears throat> um, or that suffering is evil. Well, you're right. like, no, no, because because Jesus suffered and, and, you know, so I think that, um, this direction, uh, you know, I'm really interested to basically see where it can go right. without ending up basically in a spot where you've rejected conciliar Christology. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it seems to me that has to be the, has in some way has to be the way, although I recognize that like a theology, like someone like Jürgen Moltmann or say, I think maybe in a, in a more, uh, uh, precise way someone like a John Sabrino is able to take Moltmann's theology and do some things that are very hope filled with it, right? So mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me that both of their projects are in some sense animated by this desire to give people hope who are in positions that otherwise just look absolutely impossible. Um, and to and to try to <clears throat> protect those people uh, from a metaphysics, a theological metaphysics, it seems to imply that God doesn't, God doesn't care, right? Because yeah. God's okay without you. And since God doesn't need you, he doesn't care about you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I, I think there are a lot of, I, I think there are a lot of so- sociological and psychological ways to ask questions about that sort of basic assumption. I mean, I think there's, there's plenty of studies and, and you would know them better than me. And I'm sure Ryan, you're familiar with them too. Uh, but uh, uh, given that we are all in, you know, spousal relationships, it, uh, there there can be you know problems when there's you know codependence or a need based relationship only because if the need dissipates, uh, then that can can reveal some things in what should be this mutual exchange, 
this uh, uh, mutual self-mediation that's going on. But if it's actually predicated on uh, I need you for this and you need me for that, then in a lot of analyses, you would say, well, actually, that's something that, that you two are going to have to work on because it, it can't be just a need-based relationship. And I feel like, you know, if you go at it that way, then at least I think you can raise the question, well, but maybe, maybe true love isn't about some kind of, you know, codependent of, it, of itself or of its essence, right? There, there actually might be something, it might be possible for there to be some sort of mutual exchange that doesn't, doesn't require dependence as part of its definition. Uh, yeah. and, and I think that's something that has to be sort of at least, at least theologically speaking, it needs to be a question. If you're going to have a conversation with someone who's either committed to the possibility of God or committed, uh, committed to something like open theism. Mm-hmm. I mean, in both, in, in all of these instances, um, there is a kind of practical exigence, whether that's, that's some kind of, um, cognitive dissonance surrounding a, a question of theodicy um or uh, you know the 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 kind of um social and moral besettedness that you're talking about um you know even even the most sophisticated uh theologians and metaphysicians who work in this kind of revisionary christology or or revisionary trinitarian theology almost without exception have have this kind of like you know this practical exigence that's driving the speculative project right and um sort of in in the way of discovery that's really important because it sets the sort of nexus of questions that um that your answers are going to going to have to satisfy in order to be answers but um the the liability to that kind of an approach is that you you can you can wind up in a place in which um you're you're asking questions um or posing questions to traditional answers that ha- or to just to traditional notions that um those notions are not themselves designed to address right um and so you you can kind of mangle the meaning um and basically set up a bunch of straw men to knock over um which happens i think all too frequently and so you have to kind of hold both things in tension at the one hand uh, or on the one hand you have to um really have to deal with the concrete moral exigence or practical exigence that drives speculation but at the other you have to sign kind of um make sure you're not forcing notions to do work that they're not designed to do. Um, Because otherwise you can have very banal kinds of like just good liberal values that you feel you need to get this like Trinitarian imprimatur for. It's like, no, you can just, you can just like be a good liberal and it's fine. Like you don't actually need to like derive this like pretty pedestrian politics from like, perichoresis like right. it's not that important it's not gonna it's not gonna help mobilize the masses right um <laughs> yeah. so uh i i think yeah. for for the purposes of our brand it, it might be better or or more direct to approach this um more systematically mm-hmm. yeah and really start with a kind of baseline of conciliar christology and a kind of spec the the, the kind of speculative metaphysics that allow you to um express 
the the dogmatic content of that Christology in a way that's sort of intellectually viable. And I think for right um, now, like I said, I'd, I'd like to follow up with um, a guest, you know, whose spe- whose specialty is disability yeah. um, theology, especially because I do some of it in ethics, but it's not, you know, my my area of specialty. Um, but today, I kind of want to take that exigence that is in Cross's article, kind of just at face value for now, basically saying like, all right, well, how, you know, how does he understand this kind of dependency or, or impairment within Christ? And also, um, are there ways we could do that in a conciliar? I'm going to shelve the question a little bit of, of should we um, for yeah. now? Um, I just want to even investigate, well, what, what would that look like? Because I think that that can be, you know, I know you don't want, there's the issue of um, asking documents or ideas uh, to do things they can't. But at the same time, I mean, that's the whole point of speculative theology is to pose a new question and say, well, how would we, you know, kind of answer that? So, so maybe Eric, can you can just sort of, you know, walk, walk us through the basic beats of what, what you or, or someone like you means when they talk about conciliar Christology. Sure. Uh, so I would, I'll give what I hope would be a shared account. And then I want to follow it up by saying uh, what I am increasingly convinced is a somewhat idiosyncratic uh, appropriation uh, for this terminology of conciliar Christology. Uh, so if you take someone like a cross or an analytic like Oliver Crisp or Marilyn McCord Adams, uh, but also even someone who's uh, has analytic familiarity, but obviously has gone, you know, I think well beyond that framework in really beautiful ways and is trying to develop something like this systematic frame like Sarah Coakley. Um, you know, these, these, these different kinds of philosophical and theological approaches will say, my starting point is the definition of Chalcedon, for example. And so they'll go ahead and lay out what they consider to be a conciliar Christology or framework. Um, but I think oftentimes what that comes to mean is something like this. Uh, I accept the conciliar conclusion that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father in the case of Nicaea or Constantinople, or in the case of Chalcedon, I accept the conciliar formula, the conciliar conclusion that uh, he is one person with two natures. And then also, usually, they'll go on to affirm the ways in which the natures are said to be united, according to Chalcedon. I, I, yes, that would be, in some sense, a, a conciliar framework, uh, because you're, you're receiving, and you are, in a certain sense, dogmatically affirming with the church what the conclusions are. Uh, but I'm increasingly, I, I'm convinced, and I'm actually going to argue this in part in, in my paper at AAR in November, where I'm engaging uh, Elizabeth Johnson's work, uh, recent work on uh, atonement stuff. And that is, I actually don't think that is sufficient to say you have a conciliar Christology. I think there's, I think in a certain way, <clears throat> conciliar Christology is a kind of all or nothing package. Um, and in this regard, I think John Betts's uh, recent pieces in modern theology, especially the one that came out last fall on the Christian tax past of metaphysics. Uh, uh, the, I love the first part after Heidegger and Marion. And uh, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece, but I think, I think John really nails it. He says, look, I, 
he, he, he makes this very bold claim early on in the article, and he says, I think you have to, in order to read scripture effectively, you have to, you have to take a metaphysical stance. That, that, you, that there are metaphysical commitments that reading scripture correctly requires of you. And, and I think that goes a long way, and I, it affects what I mean by a conciliar Christology, and that is there are certain commitments that the fathers gathered at these councils have metaphysically that if you don't share, their answer doesn't actually make any sense. There's no systematic or theological reason why you should accept the conclusions that they make because you don't share their problem. So I think the hypostatic union is a great example. All the fathers gathered at Ephesus, for all the differences between Nestorius and Cyril and all the politics that are behind all of that, what, they're not, what they don't disagree on is just what we were talking about earlier, that God is impassable and that God doesn't change. They don't disagree about that. So the hypostatic union is formulated by Cyril and it's ratified by the council is a solution to a problem that accepts a metaphysical and theological framework that says God doesn't change. But if you do something like Cross does, or actually increasingly most analytic theologians do now and say, but it, increasingly certain continental theologians as well who follow Hegel and, and, and process theology, uh, they might say, well, I accept the dogmatic teaching on the hypostatic union, but with no strings attached. So I'm going to affirm a solution to a problem that I don't actually think is a problem. It, for me, increasingly, I, I don't think that's conciliar Christology anymore. You might accept the dogmatic formula, but you're not actually accepting the framework in which that dogmatic formula as an answer to a, a question about history and about the incarnation is the answer. So for me, uh, there are certain metaphysical commitments that come with the council's formulations that if you accept, then you have a conciliar Christology. But if you don't, then you just have the dogmatic formula, but you actually mean something different by the dogmatic formula than is the intention of, uh, in this case, actually the intention, the corporate ecclesial intention uh, of the church. Okay, so like, there, I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which um, affirming a formula can mean no more than making certain noises with your mouth, right? Right. Yep. You know, it's it's um, unless it's the affirmation of a meaning, it's just uh, it's just a recitation. That's right. So, what is in your view, or in your um, in your mind, what what does it mean to affirm uh, the meaning of the hypostatic union as understood within the sort of thought world of the council? Right. So I think the point about meaning is great, and uh, I, but I think in addition to just sort of verbally affirming, right, I think a sort of basic meaning that most people assume is the meaning of hypostatic union is simply there's a personal union, that is the union between uh, the humanity and divinity takes place on the basis of person and not on the basis of nature. Sure. And I would actually say, so far, so good, Okay. Uh, that is, I think, in a meaning that's grammatically intended by the council, and that if you affirm that, then I think you're on your way. But I think there's a deeper meaning that undergirds that, what I would actually say is a, a really actually a grammatical meaning. It doesn't require any sort of 
are, are it, it requires a very a bare minimum of conceptuality. So underlying the grammatical meaning is a conceptuality. And I think the conceptuality is, you know, enumerated in the definition of Chalcedon in terms of the integrity of the two natures being preserved. And as soon as you start talking about the integrity of two natures, to me, that's the deeper meaning of hypostatic union. You, you have some kind of commitment to what the integrity of the two natures means. That is, there are properties, whatever that might mean, and attributes of humanity and divinity that cannot be mixed, although they can be united. And there is a certain kind of, and here I think, uh, you know, I think about uh, Balthazar's great place, uh, the uh, great piece, The Fathers, the Scholastics, and Ourselves. And I think this is something that comes out kind of clearly there, although I'm not, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that he's specifically thinking of Chalcedon, but I think here, when you talk about the integrity of the two natures, what is operative is the basic Christian commitment to the real distinction between God and creatures. I, that's an inviolable principle, I would argue, of Christian metaphysics. Now, do I think it gets implicitly violated a lot, especially today? Yes. And do I think that that automatically means you're not a Christian? No, that would be silly, right? You're not a Christian on the basis of any conceptuality. You're a Christian based on your faith, which is a gift of God. So. I think that can just be safely bracketed. But this kind of Christological metaphysics that Betts is, is taking up from Shavara, a Christological metaphysics includes, as one of its basic axioms, a creaturely metaphysics. And a creaturely metaphysics means you take the real distinction between God and creatures as a basic and fundamental given. And like even in Cross's piece, what he's trying to do with dependence, I think, is to, to, to in some way, pay homage to this dependence of the creature on the creator. But where I think it goes awry is he wants to invert that dependence. He wants to not have so much the creature. I mean, he's not excluding that the creature is dependent on God, but he wants to make God dependent on the creature in some way. But just in, but only in the second person of the Trinity, I think, right? I I think that's, I think that's, Um, uh, I think in this piece, yeah, that's right. Okay, I want to get to that piece, but I just have one quick question about, I mean, the metaphysical commitments, because all of our metaphysics are just ways in which we attempt to understand God who is beyond our comprehension. So, I mean, at Chalcedon, they had an inheritance of a particular metaphysics um, that we may or may not share today can't the means of Chalcedon essentially be translated to a different kind of philosophical register or, um, you know what I mean? Like, can you, because I think. But that's why I distinguish between the grammar and the conceptuality, right? Right. And actually, I think even more basic than the conceptuality, you actually have an elemental meaning that can be shifted into a different conceptuality and a different grammar, right? So I, I, don't, I don't actually think even, I'm not necessarily saying that if you could, if you have a conceptuality that's capable of bearing the weight of transposition so that it still expresses the elemental meaning of say the mystery of the incarnation, then I would say you're still doing conciliar Christology because you kept all the proportions the same. And so, you know, when you, when you, when Lonergan, for example, shifts out of doing two natures to two consciousnesses, 
that's conciliar Christology, I would submit humbly, kind of at its finest. So even though there's no dogmatic pronouncement on two consciousnesses in Christ, uh, nevertheless, he's preserved the proportionality so that the, the entirety of the theological conceptuality governing the relationship between two consciousnesses is effectively the same proportions with respect to the conceptuality about the two natures. But I want to modify one thing you said, j- just a pinch, um, and that is, I don't think metaphysics is our attempt to understand God. I think our metaphysics is our attempt to understand uh, the mystery of being. Hmm. And, and so what I think comes out in you know, these conciliar Christologies and why I think Shavara, but also Betts, uh, and I think now also uh, people like the Schindlers um, who, are, who are taking up the work of uh, Ferdinand Ulrich and stuff like that, I think there's what, what's in the backdrop here is uh, kind of, uh, you know, Gaudi Metzbez 22. It's not, it actually turns out it's not just that Christ reveals to us what it means to be truly human, but that the definitive revelation of God in history in the world actually also reveals what it means to be world. Uh, so going uh, to, you know, a favorite talking point of, uh, of John's, even though he's not here, uh, working out a theorem of the supernatural helps you understand nature better. And here I think the same thing is going on. The reason that you have something like a conciliar metaphysics is because in your attempt to understand the incarnation, that is in your attempt to understand God and the revelation of God, it illuminates the world or being's relationship uh, to God as well. So I'd only make that sort of slight refine. Right, no, that, that, seems, that seems to be correct. Yeah, I would agree with that. So thank you. So- yeah, well, Go ahead, oh, Ron. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna well, pivot- to cross. So you say, you, you go first. <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I think it's probably worth dwelling for a moment on the respect in which in order to, in order to do the kind of transposition that Lonergan does or that, that others seek to do, uh, you know, what, the, the thing that uh, keeps the proportion in Lonergan's Christology is not just that he has an, a new word for, to talk about what there's two of or yeah, what there's right. one of no, in good. in Christ, yeah. um, because that's that's not what a transposition is. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. And the 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 thing that I, I I bump into all the time in these conversations with folks is that I, even very sophisticated thinkers seem to still be conceiving of nature as if it were mm-hmm. um, a container, bucket. Or some kind of like, uh, some some kind of like, uh, blobby sort of object, right? Right. Um, and so it's it's a form of what Lonergan would call picture thinking. That's right. And once you once you do that, um, the log- Chalcedon's uh, pronouncements forever become a logical problem right. of how two objects can occupy the same space at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so it's the the whole thing becomes kind of crudely physicalized. That's right. Where for Lonergan and for for Thomas, I would submit uh, nature is is primarily a a meaning. That's right. Not not a material. That's right. And so um, when one when one grasps what is meant or what the term nature denotes as a meaning, then you can actually gauge the adequacy of any transposition because you can um you can understand and inquire after 
the respect in which that meaning is either preserved in a new conceptual scheme or not. That's right. Um, and so, you know, I, th- that, that, that's a, that's an element that I think, um, is, is difficult to sort of highlight in conversation because it requires what Lonergan calls intellectual conversion. That's right. Right. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it requires conceiving of the real, um, not in terms of the already out there now. That's right. And, um, it's very difficult to do that. And yeah. I think, you know, the cross piece and, and some others in this kind of, um, cohort of of theology uh, that's often what being means that's often the the criterion of the real is is sort of the body yeah. yeah right so i mean cross talks about basically two possibilities for the relationship between the natures the human nature and the divine nature either you have a formal causality or you have an efficient causality but if those are understood as meanings you could presumably you don't have to choose one or the other causality would that be correct like would you see that as part of the picture thinking that you're talking about that one thing like you know either like has to be related in this way or that way but you're still thinking about essentially how these things can occupy the same space as opposed to you can actually have two relationships between meanings that can exist at the same time yeah no i think that's exactly right um, and, and once you, if, if you're conceiving of causality, um, in sort of Thomas terms, you're conceiving of causality, uh, as a, as a, primarily as a relation That's right. and not as, um, not as a collision, right. um, or an expression or something like that. Right. Um, and so, no. yeah, there, there are multiple ways in which terms can be related. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's that's quite on display is is just a misstep in the article from a metaphysical standpoint is that uh, causality is is not a means of explanation in in the way Cross deploys them. Right there, it is a is a kind of uh, implicit or maybe just inchoate physicalism about uh, efficient cause or formal cause, and that's why he sort of presents it as you have to pick you have to pick either efficient cause as as what constitutes the union or as a formal cause which constitutes the union but i i mean not only do i think that that that's wrong that's a false dichotomy but also it violates the basic uh explanatory function of the four causes not just as like someone like thomas aquinas understood it but as aristotle formulated it back in the physics and then in the metaphysics because uh, any given any and he wouldn't have used this language, but given any created material reality, right, you, you're going to have all four causes to, to explain, you know, to explain the relationships of dependence between effect and cause. But these are just what Ryan was saying. These are intelligible relations. It can what can be intelligibly gla- grasped and reasonably affirmed. The the uh, intelligibility of formal causality, qua causality. It is not a force. It, it, you can't touch it. It, it. it is not something you can see. It's only something that can be known, but as being known, it's it is real. But Could it, yeah, go ahead. And can it be bidirectional? Like that's the other thing. Like, like, do you have to decide in a causality that one is dependent on the other? 
Because you're talking about something like natures, if it's primarily meaning, you can essentially have mutually, you can have mutual meanings instead of, you know, that are mutually reinforcing as opposed to like a, a unidirectional dependence. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think in some sense you do. I mean, I think this is really the great, I mean, I think it's one of the central theses of, of Shavara about the Analogia Entis. And if you look at causality as one of the instances, or maybe I think it would be better to say one of the instantiations of the Analogia Entis, then I, I think you begin with the principle that we just enunciated, and that is that causality is the intelligible relation which obtains between cause and effect. But an adequate concept of causality simultaneously communicates both similarity and dissimilarity between cause and effect. And in, in, in the dissimilarity in the relationship between a cause and effect is always greater. So the, there's, a, there's a disproportion between cause and effect. And so there's a dissimilarity of the cause and the effect. And one of the ways in which I think that dissimilarity manifests itself is in this line of, of dependence. Uh, then in point of fact, in most cases, there's at least some line of dependence that is only unidirectional from the effect to the cause. Right. Uh, maybe not, I mean, there might be other lines of dependence that are mutual, perhaps, uh, but I think this is actually something that, that Cross really tangles himself on, is that uh, he confuses, even in his exposition, of say the relationship between the body and the soul or between sub subject and accidents, uh, that uh, this whole, just because you're seeing this language of instrumentality and therefore you might think efficient cause, uh, you know, it, it turns out that in point of fact, the relationship between the soul and the body, at least insofar as St. Thomas conceived it, but I would actually be willing to say insofar as Scotus conceived it as well, is both efficient and formal. Right. And it's efficient with respect to the soul being the mover of the body, and then the body is the instrumentum of the soul. Right, and I think, I mean, he agrees. So basically, I mean, what Cross does, right, for people who are listening is he's like, look, you want to look at the two natures, divine and human, how are they related? Well, you have two options. You have formal causality, um, where essentially uh, the divine person is only contingently human. Like, it's like the relationship between substance and accident, right? Um, and so... But you negate inheritance, right? Yeah. yeah. Or, and he's not happy with this for a lot of reasons, especially because he's trying to do this, um, this reading from a disability lens. So um, he says the other option you have then is efficient causality, where... Um, Christ's human substance is not something like an accident of the divine person, but more like a concrete part of the divine person. Okay. So basically, um, either, you know, so then he talks about the soul and the yeah. body, right? So the soul right. is an efficient cause and the body is its instrument. Well, right. kind of the same, a little bit the same idea that like, um, then I assume what he's trying to say here is then that the divine is the efficient cause and the human is the instrument. That's right. That's right. And then he brings in, now, he, of course, says that, like, Scotus, like, he differs from Scotus here. Of course. And he follows um, Scotus' Hervaeus buddy. Yeah. yeah. Good old Hervé. Good old Harvey. Good old Harvey. So he follows Harvey's whole theory about efficient causality, but he's not happy with it, so he brings in some, some back some Scotus stuff. Yeah. But because he's following efficient, you know, so if the divine is the efficient cause and the body is the instrument, 
what he wants to basically do then is make an argument for why instead of the the instrument being reliant on the um efficient cause actually, the aging cause yeah yeah actually it's the other way around and right. so um because presumably god could not have accomplished this thing that he set out to do unless he had this particular kind of instrument right which i mean yes. in some ways though that's kind of true right? i mean in order for god to become human and to die on the cross as a human he had to have he needed the I mean, need is a bit of a strange thing always. I want to be careful when you talk to God, but but like, if Jesus is going to die as a human. Yeah, but that's what's interesting is he doesn't talk about what we mean by need. Right. Or, and the lurking, the big elephant in the room is lurking in the back of the article that he never really engages is necessity. Hmm. You got to define necessity. And it turns out, going back to our earlier conversation about relationship between questions and answers, that there's a whole framework for thinking about necessity and therefore about need, and I think also about dependence. If you want to do a real resource mod that can offer you resources for thinking about dependence and potentially impairment, then you need to talk about conveniencia. You need to talk about the fittingness of the incarnation because that's a way that you can preserve real relationships of freedom and dependence, but you don't start committing god to some sort of necessity right can you can you walk through that in like a short little give us a short little taste of what of that, yeah, what sure. that looks so, like so you know anselm always gets a pretty bad rap um for his credeos homo and uh but i mean i think some of the arguments that are leveled against anselm you actually could level at athanasius at least the way they're they're you know normally done is you got these two guys and they're trying to come up with, well, why did this have to be this way? That is, why the God-man, right? Cordeus homo. Um, and, but the, the interesting thing about Anselm is that you've got all this, this stuff about necessity in there. And unfortunately, he takes a little while to tell you, but in, in a particular chapter, I think it's chapter five of book two, Anselm actually says, hey, by the way, uh, I'm equivocating on necessity. So I don't, every time I use necessity about God in the world, I actually don't mean that. And so it, it ought to, but it doesn't for most people, totally reframe the way you read his language of necessity. What Anselm, I think, is actually trying to get at, get at is what Lonergan eventually calls the good of order. That, that there, are, there, are, there are relationships, with, there are intelligible relationships within a good of order where something makes sense. And it, but it isn't until St. Thomas that he actually formalizes a technical meaning for conveniencia. To be sure, Anselm is using a language of convenience. He also uses words like a portet, it is right, uh, it is fitting, et cetera, et cetera. But it, he's, he's clawing for it. It's something, he knows there's something there that, that doesn't mean that God has to do something, but that it makes sense for God to do something. Thomas puts his finger right on it, and he can see it. I mean, there's a reason that he doesn't ask whether the incarnation is necessary first in the church depart. That's not question one. That's question two. So he establishes a conveniencia. And what's amazing about conveniencia, since it's about what makes sense and not about what has to be, then you can actually have an intra-divine conveniencia before you have a God world conveniencia, which has to do with sin and salvation. So it's, it's just 
just tremendously powerful theological tool because you, you're not saying that it's necessary in an order of efficient causality. You're actually talking about necessity in the order of final causality. And there are two ways to talk about necessity with respect to the attainment of an end. So I think you're actually inchoately talking about what Lonergan eventually calls finality. You're not even talking about it in terms of the final cause, which would be exterior to the thing cause. You're talking about it in terms of the relationship of a thing to its end. So a subject can be related to its end, that is, it can have two modes of finality in this understanding of convenientia. One of them is what Thomas says is sine qua non. We all have a finality with respect to, to uh, living that requires us to have food. And if we don't eat food, we're going to die. That's not convenientia. Right. The second mode of finality of relating a subject to its end is what St. Thomas says is convenientius et melius. Right? And that's the kind of need that you have that if I told you that I'm going to take a trip to Rome, your smart assumption would be Eric is going to take an airplane. Eric is probably not going to walk. Could Eric walk? Yes, hypothetically, I could walk to Rome. It would require some boat movements as well in that walking. Uh, but it would make. But you're going to assume I'm taking an airplane. Why? You would even say Eric needs to take an airplane. He should not walk or drive to Rome. That's kind of the function of conveniencia. Um, you know, Bob Sweetman likes to talk about it as a narrative necessity. What makes sense within the context of of a narrative? Uh, so that that's kind of like a short primer on it. And there's just none of that in in this article about from Cross and I. And I think it would really enrich a conversation about dependent. I think it would also enrich a conversation about impairment as well, because mm-hmm. sometimes those sorts of things don't make sense. And, and the beauty about something like conveniencia is you can eventually start talking about something like the law of the cross, because that makes sense. Uh, but it's, it's, it's absent from this, this mm-hmm. discussion. I mean, the the other element there that um, you know is is uh, seems seems seemingly uh, is endlessly stalking uh, these debates. It's just a, a, a that that very basic confusion about the 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 <laughs> the way in which it is true to say that um, causes depend on effects in order to be causes. Right. That's it's it's simply to say that a, yes, a cause requires an extrinsic denominator to be a cause, but but it's the denominator that makes that makes it that way. Yeah. It's not a change in the agent that makes makes it an agent. It's presence of a relation to a patient, and so you know you can still talk about um, dependence in that formal sense, in which the the um, the patient has to exist. The patient has to actually be a patient in order for the agent to be an agent. That's right. Um, but that's a very different kind of dependence because it's a it's a relation of extrinsic negation. Right. That's right. And it doesn't affect the power of the agent. I mean, a surgeon no. is still a surgeon whether he's operating or not. Yep. Right. So a surgeon that walks in the room, she's going to operate. And, and then you have a, a surgeon-patient relationship that's enacted. But, but it's not like the potential wasn't there before. The power is still there. And, and there again, I think that uh, there's just there's a, there's a mishap here in terms of 
articulating just that relationship of contingent or extrinsic predication. Uh, and it confuses it with uh, a, a kind of ontological dependence that need not be the case. Right. So do you think you could, so you think in some ways, like, it sounds like a more fitting, like, or more, um, a better way forward is, do you think that there's a way you can talk about the relationship between the divine and human person as having kind of a dependence on the human element in terms of fittingness as opposed to efficient causality? So you want to say, right, like, you know, what he wants to say is that, look, um, you know, the, hum- the, the divine personhood is in some way dependent on this human personhood, and, and therein lies essentially this vulnerability to impairment or that in the second person. I mean, he, and if the way through efficient causality has, has all these problems, I think there's a way that you can do that from essentially a fittingness argument, or is the dependence there always, you think, in a conciliar Christology have to be? Um, the dependence of the human on God. Um, I think yes to the to the latter point, but to the former, I would say I think the whole problem with Cross's. I mean, I think there are many problems with Cross's approach, but on this particular issue, is that the line of of necessity in this qualified sense is not so much with respect between God and the instrumental cause, but between. Uh, the created order and an end, right? So uh, I think just the, the whole intelligible uh, nexus is is wrong because what we're talking about, if we're going to talk about necessity at all, we're not talking about necessity between God and creatures. If God wants to accomplish something, boom, it's done, right? Where the need is located, and this is where I think soteriologically things become tragic in Cross's account not explicitly, but implicitly, is we as humans have a need. God, in his extravagant and loving goodness, is going to help us realize the need. And in that sense, I think there's only one way to affirm the dependence. We are dependent on him to realize the need that we have. And here again, you know, in honor of John's uh, absence, I think the supernatural comes into play again. We have an end that we cannot attain on our own. God will supply what we need to attain that end. So you can only talk about dependence. God could do it any way he wanted to do it. And in his goodness and love and generosity, he chose to do it this way. Why this way? I don't know. I don't know why he did it this way. But he did it in this amazing way where he wanted to be a cooperator. He wanted us to be co agents with them but the necessity is with respect to the end it's not actually between the cause and effect ultimately speaking even within the convenience frame i think introducing a a convenience framework enables you to redirect the lines of necessity in a way that underscores both the divine gratuity and the human need as well as uh, the human eschatology that gets enacted by the divine gratuity. I think those are all frames of reference that uh, are, are really lacking here in a tragic kind of way. Because I think it's precisely the kind of enacted eschatology that could provide the hope 
with respect to the practical exigence that we were talking about before, that people that are actually sort of motivating this line of discourse. Well, that seems like an appropriate place to end. Um, thank you so much, Eric, for coming on and talking to us about this. Thank you for the um, invitation and the conversation. Uh, just a reminder, we have a Patreon. If you'd like to give us small amounts of your pocket change, you can find us at patreon.com slash systematically. Um, you can also tweet us, and by us, uh, I don't mean me, uh, at systematicpod, or email us at systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Um, uh, our music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Thank you to Trent Reznor and your Creative Commons license. And I just want to say, like, in my dream world, Trent Reznor listens, like, just for that. Thank you. Every week. He's just like, yeah, someone use my music. <sighs> Anyways, in my dream world, that's what happens. So hi, Trent. I hope you're doing well. All right. Well, just before we sign off, I just want to remind all of you this week, be attentive. Be attentive.